Amen. You may be seated. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1, verses, we're going to be looking today at verses 15, uh, sorry, verses 11 to 15. And uh, I'd also encourage you to just to tear a strip off of your uh, bulletin and uh, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and put a strip there in chapter 12 because we're going to be going there throughout the course of the message today. And then I'd invite you to tear another strip off of your bulletin and flip over to chapter 14, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, and stick a, stick a slip of paper in there. That is the real reason we give you bulletins, <laughs> is so that you can keep up as the preacher is just flying along through all these different scripture references. Our prayer, as we just sang a few seconds ago, Lord, revive us again. And that's my prayer for you this morning as we dig into the Word. I started off this week and I sent uh, the, an email off to the secretary. I said the title for the sermon is going to be uh, The Obedience of Faith. The title of the sermon has changed. This morning it is Life in the Spirit. And as I dug into the Word this week and as I continued to chew and pull it apart and look at the different things that Paul was saying there, I realized that uh, that was the thrust of what he was saying. I will return to the original theme of obedience and the faith next week, but uh, we needed to discuss life in the Spirit this week. It is by living life in the Spirit that God intends to revive us and to refresh us. Let's just pause for a moment and ask him to illuminate the text before us this morning, and then we'll, we'll dig in. Would you please bow with me in prayer? Father in heaven, we come before you, as we just sang a few moments ago, needy once again for your refreshing in our lives. We do need you. Lord, this morning, as we look at this text, we recognize, as we consider the Apostle Paul's prayer that he offered up on behalf of the church at Rome, that it is indeed your desire to refresh us as we walk with you, but it is your desire to refresh us as we yield to your Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit is attempting to do through us as well as in us. So, Lord, this morning as we turn once again to your word, I just ask you, Father, would you revive us? Would you just kindle once again that passion in our hearts where we seek with all that we are to worship you in our lives, to worship you with our service, to worship and serve you from our spirit as Paul does here. Lord, open the text before us, illuminate the passage that is there on the page, and help us to see, Father, how we are called by you to love each other, to serve you, and to do so with our spirit. Help us to live the spiritual life today, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Many years ago, when I was uh, in grade, I believe I was in grade 8, I was just uh, trying my hand at various different sports. Of course, you all are well familiar with my love of football. But as a grade 8 student, I was a scrawny kid and wasn't quite ready to play football, and so my parents encouraged me to play basketball. So I tried my hand at basketball, and I'll never forget it. It was my first experience playing basketball 
in a competitive manner for a coach that was really motivated to win, even though we were just grade eight students. And uh, this coach drove us hard. And I can remember playing uh, out on the tennis courts, and uh, it's Texas heat, and we had this summer camp in, in, and, uh, in preparation for the upcoming season. And so to put it in context, we're playing on a basketball court in blinding sunlight in 35, 37, 38 degree temperatures. It was hot. It was scorching. And we would, throughout the course of this camp, have water breaks. And uh, there was a hose there just outside the tennis courts where these basketball goals were set up. And we would run. And on a water break, we would turn on the hose and we would drink water from it in order to refresh ourselves, to revive ourselves, to get ready for round number two of uh, basketball camp. And on one particular day, uh, the coach was standing near to the hose and he called out, he blew his whistle and he called out water break. And I sprinted at a dead run to the hose I somehow, by God's grace, I was the first one there, and I turned it on, and the water began to flow, and I shoved that hose up next to my mouth, and it came out scalding hot and smelling slightly like rotten eggs. And of course, I about vomited because I was so thirsty, so hot, and I threw the hose away from myself, and I was just disgusted. And my coach was standing there, and he observed this behavior, and he looked right at me. He said, Clay Camp, I'll never forget this, some of the wisest words I ever heard. Clay Camp, you moron, get a clue. The hose will turn cold when you're ready to drink. In other words, let the water flow. Let it flow for a few seconds, and then as the water is flowing through the hose, it will clear out all of the obvious impurities that are there in the hose, and it will drop in temperature as it flows out of the ground. Then it will be refreshing. As a Texas kid, you would have thought I would have discovered that by that point in my life, but somehow I made it all the way to grade 8, not yet knowing that truth. <laughs> the same thing is kind of what I want to say to you today from Romans chapter 1, verses 15 to 18. The Christian is an individual who is to be refreshed by the Holy Spirit moving through him. In the same way that, God, that my coach called me to get a clue to understand that the water was ready to drink once it had transformed the hose, that's what I want to say to you today. As the Holy Spirit is flowing through you, it will transform you. As the Holy Spirit is ministering to those beyond you, through you, he is also ministering to you. Look at, look at the text with me. We're in Romans chapter 1. As we've seen in previous weeks, the Apostle Paul has introduced himself. Remember, he has never been to this church in Rome. He introduces himself, who he is, what God's call on his life is, and he begins to introduce these broad themes of what it is that he wants to talk to them about in this letter. And what's fascinating is he just jumps right in and begins to explain to them what it is he's going to talk to them about right from the introduction. But as is customary for all of his letters, he pauses to pray and offer a thanksgiving for this church. Paul is always thankful for the churches. In all of his letters, except for one, he starts off after the introduction, after saying who he is and, and uh, the person who's writing to them, he always, with the exception of one letter, pauses to give thanks for this church. And he does so here in Romans. 
After introducing himself and after addressing the church at Rome, he says in verse 8, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. And he goes on, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. He hints at the fact that he wanted to be with this church, but he couldn't get there. For those of you that were with us as we were preaching through the book of Acts, you'll recall when Paul landed on the Aegean Peninsula, when he was in Macedonia, he was preaching the gospel in Thessalonica, and there was a mob of Jews that began to pursue him all the way down the peninsula as far as Corinth. He was running from these Jews. And it's there that he made a deviation. It was clearly his intention to go uh, westward towards Rome. But because of this mob chasing him, he wasn't able to continue his westward push. He ended up heading south, and then he got caught up in collecting an offering for the saints in Jerusalem. He ended up headed back to Jerusalem. But it was always his design to go there. And in Corinth, as a matter of fact, he is writing to the church in Rome sometime around 57 AD, and he's saying, I've always wanted to come, but I've been hindered. He says, I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine, he says. And I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you. He says it again. He repeats it. I have often intended to come to you, but thus far I have been prevented. There's a sort of a parenthetical comment. I have often longed to come to you. I have often intended to come to you in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So, he says, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Now, has he said it often enough that you've clued in? Three times he said, I wanted to come. I've longed to come. I'm trying to get there. I've been kept from getting there. I want to be there. I am going to get there to preach to the people that are there. He says it over and over and over again. And you might be hearing all this and you stop and you think, wait a minute, I thought he was praying for them. Yes, he is. This is a very unusual prayer. He is praying for them, but in the course of praying for them, he somehow transitions into this statement, I got to get there to see you guys. So let's take it one verse at a time and let's walk slowly through it. In verse 8, he says, first of all, this is the first thing he's saying to them, his prayer report, his prayer for the church at Rome. He says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. In all the world, now is that hyperbole? Are you exaggerating for dramatic effect? What's going on here, Paul? Why do you say that? In 49 AD, and remember, Paul is writing around 57 AD. In 49 AD, about eight years prior to Paul writing this letter, incidentally, right around the time he is fleeing from the Jews in Thessalonica down the Aegean Peninsula, an interesting event takes place in Rome. The emperor in Rome is an individual at that time by the name of Claudius. And according to the historian philosopher, an individual by the name of Suetonius in his memoirs, Suetonius records that in 49 AD, Claudius had evicted all of the Jews out of Rome. 
which is a very strange action to take. He says, I don't want any Jews here. All of you get out of the city. And Suetonius tells us that the reason that Claudius evicted all of the Jews was that within the Jewish community, there were these really intense debates that were bubbling over into violent riots. They were actually rioting over these intense debates. And according to Suetonius, what was at the heart of these debates was a question regarding the Jewish religion, the Jewish faith, over someone who was identified as being a god by the name of Crestus, which was another name for Christ, the Christ. And so what's happening in 49 AD is that the church in Rome is engaging with their Jewish Uh, their fellow Jews, and they're preaching the gospel, and they're succeeding in winning a number of Jewish converts to the Christian faith, and the Jews in Rome, in the Jewish community, are so upset that they begin to riot over this. All of this comes to Claudius' attention, the emperor in Rome, and it becomes such an issue that he says, everybody just, just get out, just leave. I'm tired of this bickering. I'm tired of this fighting and rioting. Everybody go. Now, this was not a seriously enforced eviction, but it was loosely enforced, and it did prove to be a bit of a challenge for the Jews as well as the Christians living in Rome. But news of this spreads throughout the empire. So Paul hears this news as he is running for his life from the Jews in Thessalonica. He hears that the the Christians in Rome also have been evicted from Rome as he is running for his own life and he encounters this information in Corinth and he sits down in the midst of his own missionary enterprise to pen a letter to his brothers and sisters in Rome and he starts off and he says, man, what great news. He's referencing their eviction from Rome, but the great news that he is so grateful for is that their faith in Crestus Their belief in God, their belief specifically in Jesus, has now been proclaimed throughout all the world as a result of this edict, this eviction, which Claudius commanded. So he starts off and he says, I thank God for you guys. I am so grateful for you right now and the fact that you've been kicked out of your own homes, kicked out of your own city, because in the process of that happening Your faith in Jesus is now proclaimed throughout all the empire. He is thankful for that. He goes on in the next verse, verse 9. He says, God is my witness. Now, what's interesting here in verse 9 is he starts off with a four. That means this next statement is intended to support his previous statement. He's saying, I'm grateful for you. I'm grateful for your faith that's been proclaimed in all the world. And this next statement is sort of an explanation for why he is grateful. He says, for God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. He says, I've heard you've been evicted, and I'm grateful for that because now news of your faith has gone throughout all the empire, and I'm grateful for that because I'm praying all the time that somehow, some way, I can get there to see you. Now, that doesn't make any sense, does it? Just step back and think about it for a second. You're not home. Awesome. I've always wanted to visit you at your house. You're not home. Great. I've been praying for this. 
and I'm going to go to your house while you're not there. Does that sound quite right? Not exactly. That's kind of awkward if you think about it. How is your prayer, Paul, of gratitude for the Jews not being at home, how is that uh, uh, what you've been praying for this whole time? In what way are you hoping to go see these Jews in Rome that you think this situation where they've been kicked out by Claudius is actually helpful? It comes back to this expression of the spiritual life that Paul is living. And there's no way for any of us to really understand what Paul is getting at here unless we allow our minds to be shaped by the truth of Scripture, which is to reject all the lies and the deceptions that the world is pushing upon us, particularly right now at this point in history. If you were to watch the news, if you were to read the newspaper, if you were to consider all of the events that are happening in the world, the belief system that is prevalent states that all that we are is a product of social construction. There's no such thing, no real thing as a boy or a girl. It's something that society has forced upon you, and you're actually free to choose whether or not you want to be a boy or a girl, regardless of biology. It's all just a social construct. There are other ways in which this is being pushed upon us. One of the things we understand is that as far as society is concerned, all we are is a living creature, a living organism that can be shaped or molded as the individual decides. In other words, there's nothing higher, nothing further, nothing beyond what we are as physical beings with physical bodies. In other words, society is starting to suggest that the most important thing, the greatest value that we should have is the value of sustaining our physical lives because all we really are are just brains. There is no discussion of the soul or the spirit. So these ideas are being forced upon us, and slowly but surely, my fear is that within our church, it's chipping away at this bedrock truth that we all understand that there is a physical component to who we are, that that physical component has been given to us by God above. Some of us are skinny. Some of us are stout. Some of us are boys. Some of us are girls. Some of us are white. Some of us are not white. Some of us are uh, uh, First Nations or Dutch or Italian as the case may be. All of this given to us by God, all of this to be processed, that we are to live life through this physical body, processing not merely as creatures with brains, but as creatures with hearts, with souls, with a spirit. And the spiritual is completely ignored. In fact, discussions of the soul and what is good for the soul is completely suppressed in order to elevate the human body as all that there is, the material as all that matters, and then to further argue that in your autonomy, you can do as you please with that physical, with that body. If that's your understanding, you will look at this paragraph and think that all Paul is saying is, I'm glad you're not home so that I can go there and be in your home while you're not there. But that is not what Paul is saying. It comes down to this expression, with my spirit. This is really the linchpin of this text. Paul makes this statement, 
in verse 8. This is the justification for why he is praising God for why they've been evicted, why they've been kicked out of Rome, why their faith has been proclaimed throughout all the empire. He says, for God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit. Now, if you're underlining in your text, I'd invite you to underline that, that particular expression. God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit. And he goes on to say in verse 11, I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. You might want to underline spiritual gift. So in this passage, a thought that is closely at at the forefront of Paul's mind as he's writing to the church of Rome is that the reasons why he is grateful for their faith and the reasons for why he wants to be with them are reasons that are spiritual in nature, okay? There is something going on here at the level of the soul. Now, Paul is clearly alluding to the fact that he is living life as a spiritual person. We might say that he is living the spiritual life. But the assumption that he has in writing to the church at Corinth is that they also are living the spiritual life. So let's ask the question, what does it mean? When we say to each other, are you living the spiritual life? Are you living in the spirit? Are you walking according to the spirit? What, what exactly does that mean? We, we often use this, this is a Christian expression, but for an outsider or an unbeliever who comes into our church, if they were to hear us using this expression, would they really understand what we're saying when we say that? Would they really know what we're implying, what we're getting at when we say all of those things? What does this expression mean? Does it mean that we live and we serve God from the hidden, immaterial part of our being? That is, is Paul saying to the church at Rome, uh, God is my witness whom I serve with my own soul? Or is Paul alluding to something deeper? For example, is Paul saying, uh, I, I, God is my witness whom I serve by the Holy Spirit? Is he saying that he serves God by the power that the Holy Spirit provides? Or is he saying that he serves God from his soul? Which one do you think it is? And for those of you who are new here, that's the question that you're probably wondering. What exactly is he talking about? Is the preacher really indicating from the text that there is some sort of divine being that indwells us? Yes, that's true. There is a divine being that indwells those who place their faith in Jesus Christ. But it is also true that we are more than just brains. We're not just brains inside of a physical body. We have a soul. So then, for those of you who are gathering with us, you might be asking yourself the question, is what Paul's saying here, that he serves God, that God can bear him witness, that he serves him with all of his being? That is, is this kind of like an expression saying, love the Lord your God with all your soul and with all your strength? Is that what Paul is saying here? Well, this is the question that I wrestled with all week. Paul uses this word, spirit, or pneuma, twice in this opening thanksgiving and prayer. The question we're trying to answer as he uses this word is what exactly is he getting at? It is my belief, my conviction, from having dug into this text all week long, that he means it both ways at the same time. Which is it, Pastor Josh? Is he saying that he serves God By the Holy Spirit, or is he saying that he serves God by his soul? To which I say to you, yes. Yes. And I really think that. 
I really do. Bear with me here. In the places where Paul uses the word spirit, he absolutely, throughout the rest of the Bible, throughout the rest of the scripture, where Paul uses this word spirit, he can, and he very much so, according to the context of those passages, he can be referring to just his own soul. A couple of examples of this. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 16, 18, this is not there, Stephen. Don't look for it. It's not there. In 16, 18, he says, I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaeus because they have made up for your absence. Again, he's writing to the church at Corinth. He says, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. So in that particular passage, he's talking about being refreshed. That is being encouraged. And again, in 2 Corinthians 2.13, he says, my spirit, he's writing to the church at Corinth again in another letter, and he says to them, my spirit, that is my soul within me, was not at rest because I didn't find my brother Titus there, so I took leave of them, he says, and I went on to Macedonia where he will find Titus. In both of those passages, those verses reflect a concern for anxiety. He was anxious. I didn't find Titus. I had these brothers come to me, and they refreshed me. Both passages reflect a concern for anxiety, but they understand anxiety is coming from the inner person, that is from the soul or the spirit, that is the immaterial aspect of our beings. And in the instance that I just mentioned, this uh, not finding rest in his spirit, as Paul says, was set in contrast with not finding rest physically for his own weary body. Previously in the letter, he says, even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest because we were afflicted at every turn. So he's talking about physical rest, bodily rest, and then he goes on to say that his spirit or his soul had no rest. So Paul absolutely can use this word pneuma to refer to his own soul. But again, he can also use this word pneuma to refer to the Holy Spirit. When Paul elsewhere refers to his pneuma in the context of spiritual life, he intends to say that he does indeed serve God with his own spirit, but he does so always because his spirit is yielded to the power of the Holy Spirit of God. That's what Paul is getting at. And in order to show you this, I invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. It'll be on the screen if you're here this morning, you don't have a Bible. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and this comes at the end of that great passage on communion, by the way, which he's exhorting the church at Corinth to not look at each other as being utterly beneath who they are as Christians, as brothers and sisters in Christ. And then he moves on to this discussion of serving each other. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, just after the discussion around communion, he says, concerning spiritual Gifts, same expression as what he uses in Romans chapter 1. He says, concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols. However, you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. 
Now, his point there is to say that the Holy Spirit comes upon a person and gives them the ability, enables them to confess Jesus Christ as being the Lord of their lives. And if they can't confess it, it's because they don't have the Holy Spirit. And if someone says, I don't, I don't confess Jesus Christ as Lord, in fact, Jesus is cursed as far as I'm concerned, you know that he definitely does not have the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul is getting at. So he's talking about the reality that there's this divine Holy Spirit that's out there. And he goes on to say, now there are varieties of gifts, that is, different abilities that Christians are given, different tasks that they're good at that they can do in order to bless each other. He says there are a variety of gifts, but it is the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but it is the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who, notice this, empowers them all in everyone. Every gift, every activity, every spiritual thing you do is empowered by God. Paul, uh, that, that's what the Apostle Paul is saying. And he goes on to issue this broad statement. He says, to each, each Christian is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So what Paul is using pneuma here in this particular passage is to refer to the fact that every Christian is indwelt by the Holy Spirit and that he's been given the Holy Spirit in order to empower him to, as he says, manifest the Holy Spirit, that is, make the Spirit visible by performing various acts, various services that bring blessing to the members of the church. And he calls that the common good. Now, just skip over to chapter 14. He has introduced this whole discussion on spiritual gifts by using the word pneuma to talk about the Holy Spirit. And in that passage, and I don't have time to walk you all the way through it this morning, He is addressing a concern that was specific to the church at Corinth, namely that they were abusing their their spiritual gifts. They were regarding some as more important than others. And one of the spiritual gifts that was overly prized at the church at Corinth was the spiritual gift of speaking in tongues. So he talks about all of that, and then he comes to this statement in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 14 to 15. He says, if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, referencing the Holy Spirit, and you'll notice he's talking about, he uses the possessive there. The Holy Spirit can be praying, my Holy Spirit, but he says, my mind is unfruitful. He doesn't know what he's saying. He doesn't understand the tongue per se. So he goes on to ask this question, what am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing praise with my mind also. Just as the Holy Spirit prays or sings through Paul's spirit, so also the spirit is the source of Paul's serving God through his own spiritual gift. Paul links his activity in the spirit And he instructs the church in Corinth in terms of their activity to be done from the power that the Holy Spirit supplies. So when Paul writes to the church at Rome, going back to Romans chapter 1, and he says, I call upon God, God bear me witness, whom I serve with my spirit, he absolutely can be referring to his own soul, saying that he serves God from all that he is, from the bottom, the depths of his heart. But you need to understand that as Paul is serving God, 
he recognizes that any gift, any service, any action he performs for God out of his own soul is only able to be done because first the Holy Spirit entered into him. So whether he's referring to the Holy Spirit or his spirit, the point that I want you to see is that Paul sees the Holy Spirit indwelling his spirit and he operates out of that relationship. Point is that you don't need to drive a wedge between soul and Holy Spirit. Paul is saying that out of this union, his relationship with God, he performs his action. He performs his service. Now, the Spirit is singular. We have been given, those of us who believe in Jesus, the Holy Spirit. Singular. There's only one of them. But the scriptures describe this Holy Spirit as indwelling each one of us who have trusted in Jesus. Which means that there is something in me as a believer in Jesus which is in you if you believe in Jesus. Which means that there is a real connection between us. Not some sort of hairy fairy tale type of thing. You know, we, we speak of, uh, we, very often the world will talk of other things in this world from this sort of paganistic idea, this sort of Hinduistic idea that all the world is one and all is moving towards oneness and there's life in everything, including the trees and birds and dogs and all of this. And that isn't what Paul is saying at all. Paul is saying that you have a soul and the Holy Spirit indwells you, and indeed, as you believe in Jesus and you have that Holy Spirit indwelling you, you are connected in a real way only to other people who believe in Jesus. But there is a real connection. Say, so how, how do you know that, Pastor Josh? Look again at verse 10. He says, I thank God for you guys. He says that in verse 8. And the question is, how would, they, how would they know that he's actually thanking God? He wants them to know that he's thanking God for them, but he's never met them face to face. So he says, I thank God for you guys. And in case you don't believe me, because you never met me, and we've never talked face to face, and it's been years and years and years, and I've never been able to get there to Rome to see you, and so naturally you might be a little skeptical of my love for you since I've never made it there to talk to you. He says, I want you to know I'm praying for you. And he says, God is my witness that I'm, that I'm praying for you. Well, what good is that? I can't talk to God. I can't ask God, can I? God, is Paul praying for me? But Paul seems to think that indeed you can. God is a witness. He is alluding to the fact that God knows I'm talking to him about you And out of this, he says, this is the God whom I serve with my spirit, which is to imply that there is some connection between Paul and the church in Rome. This connection exists by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, we're all sitting here, and we're good Baptists, and this is starting to go in places we're not comfortable with, talking about the Holy Spirit. It's like, okay, Pastor Josh, where are you going with all of this? I can only say that I'm going where Scripture clearly points. Now, we may not be ecstatic 
in our worship of the Lord as our charismatic brothers and sisters. We may not get as emotional, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Don't misunderstand me. Some people are more expressive with their worship. Others are more reserved with their worship. I think either is fine as long as you're worshiping the Lord out of a true and pure heart. You're trying to lift praises to Him. Regardless of our personal preferences for how we worship the Lord, one thing that the Pentecostal church has done very well, one thing that the charismatic church has done exceptionally well to point out and to emphasize is that there is a common bond amongst all those people together in that church. That bond exists in the Holy Spirit. One spirit indwelling every believer. And we see this in the scriptures. Give you a couple of examples. Go over to... No, don't go over there. We, we don't have time. I'm looking at my watch. Time is getting away from us. If you go over to... Uh, in 1 Corinthians... In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, actually... Uh, Paul makes this statement, chapter 4, I beg your pardon. No, no, it is chapter 5. Paul makes this statement. They're getting ready to do church discipline, and there's this guy there that has been sleeping with his, with his stepmom, of course, and it's a horrible scandal within the church, and now Paul is calling upon them to remove this man from their church congregation. He makes this statement in verse 4, chapter 5, verse 4. When you are assembled, or the Greek word there, ecclesia, when you are churched together, he says, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and he makes this statement, and my spirit is present. My spirit is present. He says, when you're gathered together in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Is Paul really indicating to the church at Corinth that he had some sort of an out-of-body experience in which he left his body and he flew thousands of miles and he was there hovering over their worship service, their gathering, as they did church discipline on this unrepentant person? By no means. No means. There is no evidence anywhere in the scriptures for any of that. And yet Paul is saying that when the church at Corinth, as believers in Jesus Christ, gather together to exercise church discipline, there is a very real bond between him and them. And the bond that he points to is the bond of the Holy Spirit. That he is connected to them, that he is joined to them across time and space as a result of the Holy Spirit that indwells him, which also indwells them. And we also see this beyond the Apostle Paul to the Apostle John. Again, don't flip there, just listen. In Revelation, say, ooh, Revelation, this is going to get exciting. We're not going very far into Revelation. Don't get your hopes up. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 9, the Apostle John, writing to these various churches, says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He'd been exiled. He was separated from his church. He was a prisoner on this prison penal colony on the island of Patmos. And as he's there, he makes this incredible statement. He says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice. And he goes on to recount his encounter with the Lord Jesus. I was in the Spirit. Is the Apostle John saying that he has a soul, but he doesn't actually live with his soul for six days out of the week, and then on Sunday he does decide to get busy living with his soul? 
Of course not. It is a reference to the Holy Spirit. In that understanding, look at what Paul says. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. I thank God because your faith has been proclaimed in all the world. God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. I want to be there. The thrust of what he's just said is, I am living life in the Holy Spirit. I am serving God with my soul and by the power of the Holy Spirit, and I am praying that I can come and see you. There is a connection between them. That connection exists by the fact that both groups, Paul and the church in Rome, are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And he goes on. He says, I long, verse 11, I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. He wants to bless them. He wants to serve them. He wants to give them a gift which is spiritual. He serves God with his spirit, and that service of God with his spirit is moving him to say, I want to come to Rome in order to bless you, in order to strengthen you with a spiritual gift that is some activity that God empowers in me through the Holy Spirit. You say, well, what is that? What is that gift? Look at what he says here. He says in verse 13, I want you to know that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far I've been prevented. Reason number one, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. Verse 14, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. I'm under obligation to preach the gospel to them. And then again in verse 15, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Paul is saying, I thank God for your faith. I want to come to you to impart a spiritual gift to you. In imparting that spiritual gift to you, I am hoping to bless you by strengthening your faith, and I am hoping to be blessed by you, that my faith will be strengthened by your faith, and here's what I want to do. Here's the gift, Paul says. Here's what I'm bringing. I want to preach the gospel to the Gentiles who live there in Rome. Say, what is this? What are you getting at? They're doing a great job preaching the gospel. In fact, they're doing such a great job of preaching the gospel that Claudius has evicted them from Rome. But who are they preaching the gospel to? Where is the debate? The debate is amongst Jews. Paul, in Acts chapter 9, is called to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Now, there were certainly Gentiles in the church at Rome. Don't misunderstand me. They have obviously reached a good group of people, Jews as well as Gentiles. But in terms of their eviction from Rome, which happened eight years prior to the writing of this letter, 
That eviction was based on rioting and dissension within the Jewish community, which means they saw, and their primary target in terms of evangelism and outreach was to go to their fellow Jews, their fellow countrymen, which makes perfect sense. Paul is a Jew, and his strategy was always to start with the synagogues, but he never stopped there. He went beyond the synagogues. Now, notice what he says here. You guys, I give thanks for you. I want to come to you, and I want to bless you. And his primary concern throughout the rest of this letter, we're going to see this. He's going to be emphasizing that the Gentiles, that is, those individuals who are not Jews, are to be included amongst the people of God without, by any means, excluding those who are Jewish. Those who are of the people of Israel... They are to be included in this new people of God. And those people who are Gentiles, who have up until this point been strangers and excluded from the people of God, they're also welcome to come. Paul says, I want to come and I want to bring a spiritual gift to you. And that spiritual gift is, I want to be preaching both to Jews as well as to Gentiles. The weakness, which is only hinted at very lightly here, is that the church in Rome has done a great job of reaching Jews, but perhaps they're struggling to reach the Gentiles. And Paul doesn't say to them, look, you guys need to get out there and get busy and get after it. He says, I want to impart some spiritual gift to you. Well, what would that gift be? As an apostle who's been called specifically by God, commissioned by God to preach to the Gentiles, he's saying, I want to come to you in order that I can make up for whatever is lacking there in your ministry. I want to partner with you and I will preach the gospel to the Gentiles. In other words, Paul is saying the gift that I want to give to you, it's not like he somehow takes his spiritual gift or the calling that God has on his life and he separates it from himself and he gives it to the church at Rome. No, he's going to give them the gift that is his gift by going to Rome and partnering with them to reach the Gentiles. This becomes his focus over and over and over again as he writes this letter. This is what he wants them to understand. And in case you're not sure of that, he goes on in chapter 15, and he says at the very end of his letter, chapter 15, verses 15 to 16, on some points I have written to you very boldly, he says, by way of reminder because of the grace of God given to me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable and sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Paul is saying, you guys live in Rome. You live in the largest city, the capital city of the empire. And he says, I want to strengthen you by helping you reach the Gentiles. And the spiritual gift that he imparts is twofold. It's knowledge of that truth, that God wants to rescue a people from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. That knowledge combines with him in his own giftings and his own abilities, partnering together to reach Rome with the gospel. So you're here today, and you're thinking, okay, So what do all of this have to do with me? Very often when I speak with brothers and sisters in Christ, it is not unusual to hear that brothers and sisters are struggling in their walk with the Lord. They feel as though their faith is dry 
that their relationship with God has gone cold. From all outward appearances, they're faithful. They attend church every week. They read their Bible every day. They're faithful to come and to be a part. But when I probe deeper, what I find is that there is no desire on their part to love their brothers and sisters by taking whatever gift God has given them and using it to bring blessing and joy to others. In this particular passage here, Paul is praying to God and his conversation to God. He says, please let me be there that I can help them Let me be there in person that I can bless them. His prayer to God is, get me to Rome, Father, so that I can bless them with the spiritual gifts that you have given me, that I can impart to them a spiritual gift. And notice what he says last of all, verse 12. He starts off in verse 11. He says, I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. Verse 12, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Did you catch what the Apostle Paul just said? I want to get there to bless you, and getting there and blessing you will also result in my being blessed by you. We look at this guy, this is a man that traveled the whole Mediterranean world. I mean, he went hundreds of thousands of miles by foot preaching the gospel. We have half of the New Testament written by this man. He was clearly someone who walked with the Lord, and yet as he's writing to the church in Rome, he says, I want to get there to help you, and he humbles himself before the church. This man, the Apostle Paul, one of the founding fathers of the church, he says to the church in Rome, whom he did not plant, I want to see you face to face that I might bless you that you would bless me. It's as though in pouring out of what God has given him, Paul has every expectation that in blessing these brothers and sisters, he himself will be blessed and he wants it. And the word that he uses is so specific. Verse 12, that we may be mutually encouraged. You can underline that, encouraged. And if you go back to verse 11, for I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. Same Greek word in both places, whether we're being strengthened in the faith or whether we're being encouraged in the faith. The idea here is that we are being built up in our faith through the mutual exchange of spiritual gifts. Now, that's a lot of technical talk, a lot of scripture verses that had to be referenced. And I want to just say thank you all for trekking through that whole passage with me and coming to this point. What we need to leave with today is this. Jesus, sharing the gospel. I pointed this out to my students in my New Testament survey class this week. They were stunned. In the Gospel of John, one of the first evangelistic encounters that Jesus has with a woman from Samaria, a woman married five times over. He meets with this woman, and he begins to challenge her on her relationship with her various husbands 
And as they begin this, as they continue on with this dialogue, she begins to query him about the proper way to worship the Lord. She says to him, are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and he drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, regarding that water, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. It's the first time he introduces this idea of salvation and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit with the metaphor of water. He returns to it again in John chapter 7. And he says on the last day, John tells us on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and he cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Holy Spirit. The idea there is that if you find your life dry, if you find the things that you've been turning, for, turning towards for satisfaction, if you find that they no longer satisfy, it is because you were meant to be satisfied by the Holy Spirit living in you. It was because you were meant to place your faith in Jesus Christ to turn to him, to see him for the beautiful, glorious person that he is as your Savior and as your Messiah, dying on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins and entrusting in him to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. That is, that you become like a hose with water gushing forth out of you. That's right, it gushes out of you. It's intended to refresh you, to satisfy you. But it is clear from this text here in Romans and Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians, that it is meant to move beyond you, that it is meant to serve those around you. You are called as a Christian to satisfy those around you. And in doing so, you also will be satisfied by the Spirit of Jesus Christ. So my prayer this morning, First Baptist Church, is that you would not seek to just be a consumer here at First Baptist. That you wouldn't just sit on the back row and watch. But that you would pursue the goodness and the greatness of Jesus by taking what he has blessed you with and using it to bless others. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we just say thank you for this word that you've given to us this morning. It's long and it's technical. Paul uses spirit to refer to two different parts of him, his soul as well as to the Holy Spirit, and he speaks out of both places. And as we look at this word this morning, Lord, our prayer is that you would help us to serve you by serving each other. And as we seek to exalt the name of Christ in each other's lives, as we seek to bless each other through the gifts of the spirit that you have bestowed upon us, we look for your refreshing Refresh us, O Lord, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.